you've probably heard this question before, but it's one that's worth uh, repeating. And that is, if you knew that Jesus Christ would return to earth tomorrow, how would you live today? What decisions would you make? How would you spend the remaining hours that you have? Well, the fact is, we don't know when Christ is coming back. Some people have complained it sure has taken him a long time to come back. But look at the way we treated him the first time he came. You kind of don't blame him in some ways. But one of the things that Scripture is clear about is he is coming back. And for some, for Christians, that will be a day of rejoicing unparalleled in human history. For those who are non-Christians, it will be a day of dread and of judgment. And what the Lord would have us do is the theme of our, uh, uh, of our uh, series that we go through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians through this whole school year is to live a lot, our life in the light of his return. There is an expectation and reason why he mentions his return so many times that with that expectation in life, that should sober us to the holy realities of what it means to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ, to worship him in spirit and in truth, to be an upholder of the truth, to persevere to the end. And Thessalonians is particularly well known about addressing some of those end times issues, partly because there was confusion going on about what was going on. And we're going to cl clarify that. But it doesn't just leave it there. It also speaks about what should the Christian do in terms of how he orders his life in the light of his return. As our friend Rick Phillips points out, there's a real similarity between the first and second Thessalonians and the Olivet Discord, where Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives prior to his death. And I'll read to you from Luke chapter 21. And, they, uh, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will, uh, will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. He is coming back. That should motivate us to worship him the way he has told us we are to worship him. So the theme of this series, Living in the Light of His Return, I'm hoping will help us as individuals and as a church to live in the light of his return. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would unpack these wonderful verses and teach us truth from his word this morning. God, we do love you. and We thank you, God, uh, that we believe in the first coming of Christ, that you were born of a man, born under the law, that you lived as a man, sinless for 33 years, that you died for our sins and that you were resurrected. We believe that. Let us also equally believe that there will be a, a day when you will return. And the present earth is reserved for fire and fire will consume everything and you will create a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. I pray, God, that everybody within the sound of my voice, whether in this room or over the Internet, would be ready for that time and would be those who would dwell in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Between today and that time, we pray, God, that you would teach us how to live in the light of your return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
If you would to uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians and with a reckless abandon, we're going to handle one verse this morning. But you know that doesn't mean you're going to get out early, right? <laughs> so it just does not the way we do things. We're going to look at every word and make sure that you understand. And this is also a way of kind of introducing the series because one of the principles you need to understand is context is king. And you need to understand the context of the letter, what Paul is writing and that kind of thing. So we're going to go over where he wrote it from, why did he write it, and that sort of thing. One of the basic biblical principles of, of, of important hermeneutics, understanding the message of Holy, Holy Scripture. So please do turn to 1 Thessalonians 1.1. And this is the text as we start off this wonderful series. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians... In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now we're going to break up this verse into three different sections. You might find that some assistance at your home group help insert. This is what the home groups use to kind of, uh, kind of go back and, and go back over and talk about the text uh, that we had uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's what the Puritans used to call chewing the cud. You want to take those wonderful spiritual truths and kind of digest them and bring them back up again and discuss them with other people. But on the other side of Home Group Health, we have some questions on one side. The other side, again, it gives you the outline here of, of, the, uh, of the sermon. You're going to see here the greetings in verse 1a, the gathered people of Thessalonica in 1b, and the giving of grace and peace in 1c. So first of all, we see the greetings here. This letter is from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. All right, so uh, this is basically kind of keeps the standard introduction of the Greco-Roman world. When someone is writing a letter, and it could be a politician, it could be a mama writing to her son, whatever it might be, they're going to normally say who the writer is. This really, I don't know how we lost this. Doesn't this make sense? You know, you get a letter at home and you immediately go to the back and say, who's this letter from? Who's this card from? I don't know why we don't put that on the front, but we kind of, I guess it's just anticipation. Who's this thank you letter from? <laughs> you know, like well, we could probably do with less anticipation in our life. But they start off by saying, here's the writer. And then you to the addressee who they're writing to. And then they give greetings. And it's often accompanied with a well wish uh, or something like that for the well-being of the, of the addressee here. So Paul bas basically does the same sort of thing. He says who it's from, who it's to. And then he basically gives something of a greeting, a well wish. But it's really often a prayer. And it's often uh, structured around the, the glory of God. And why is he writing to the glory of God here? So it, we start off here with these three names. And these are important names for you to know. First of all, the Apostle Paul. Now, one of the things I, I, I have the opportunity to teach a freshman class at Anderson University, uh, Introduction to the Bible. And one of the things I tell them, and I'll tell them again on Thursday night, is that when I was your age, I didn't even know who Paul was. I knew that there was a big church named for him in London, and it kind of stopped there. You know, I was almost completely ignorant of doctrine and even biblical characters. So, uh, you know, I try to encourage them that I will be patient with you as we figure these things out. Some people come there, and they've, know, they've known the apostles all their entire life. They already know the 66 books of the Bibles. Some people, it's brand, brand new. So I don't want to take, I don't want to take that for granted this morning. Who is Paul? Well, Paul's probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. And it's amazing, too, because he started off as a terrorist. He had a zeal for stamping out Christianity, a zeal that wasn't satisfied with just arresting and having people killed in Jerusalem. He got permission to go get, arrest them in Damascus, in foreign churches. 
And on his way to, uh, uh, on the Damascus road, the Lord appears to him and say, why are you persecuting me? And his response is, who are you, Lord? And what was the response? I am Jesus who you were persecuting. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? I have literally been arresting, ripping babies away from their mamas, throwing their mamas in jail. I was there when Stephen was stoned to death and I was all doing it, doing it because I thought I was doing God a service. And here God shows up and says, you've been working against me the entire time. No wonder he didn't eat or drink for three days, right? But Paul told, a guy told Paul, I'm going to teach you that you're going to have to suffer for my name's sake. And appointed him to be the, the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul hated Gentiles. They were the great unwashed. He, uh, racism was sort of part of the Jewish teaching at the time. You just looked down on anybody who wasn't like you. And yet, in, in, in God's beautiful irony, showing the great grace and love of God, he actually became the one who, out, who actually took the gospel to the Gentiles. So it's interesting, when you see Saul, Saul was named for the great first king of Israel. But after this conversion, he begins to refer himself as Paul. And Paul means little, little. There are a lot of us who beat ourselves up thinking we have nothing to offer anybody else. Why would God ever choose me? I'm a loser. Well, that probably is why God did choose you. There's just not a lot of, in God's economy, he, do, he doesn't need a lot of prima donnas. He, need, he needs, he will change the world. He will change this community. He will transform this church with a bunch of little people like the Apostle Paul. So he doesn't, one of the things that is interesting here, especially after we just finished uh, going through 2 Corinthians, you remember 2 Corinthians, there was sort of, Paul was sort of constantly having to defend his apostolic ministry, his calling from God uh, against uh, the usurpers, against the false teachers. What he doesn't mention here, he doesn't mention he's apostle. He doesn't mention he's an apostle. He often does that. Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised me from the dead. So think, why do you think Paul doesn't say in here, in Thessalonians, that he's an apostle, that he reminds them that he's an apostle? Well, because it just wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue. They didn't question his credentials. They, they knew him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. The other reason is probably this. It's a very intimate letter. He loves these people and they love him. He was parted from them in a sense by force, by persecution. If he didn't get out of town, it was going to get worse and worse and worse for the church. So he had to hit the road, battered and bleeding. So there's just not a question here of his apostolic authority. It's an intimate, wonderful t uh, uh, tone to the entire letter, which will make us just enjoy it all the more and to make us to love the Lord all the more. Silas, of course, is the next person. The Latin name is Silvanus. Silas is described in the book of Acts as a leading man of Jerusalem. Silas was the guy after, uh, after the Council of Jerusalem when they went out and they, they basically emphasized the grace that's in Christianity, that you don't have to keep the law of Moses, you don't have to circumcise your children, things like that. Silas was the guy that was tasked to taking that decision out to the other churches of huge responsibility. Silas was the guy, you remember when Paul and Barnabas had an argument because John Mark, you know, kind of acted immaturely and kind of caved on them? 
uh, later came back and wrote the gospel, so we're grateful for God, you know, not just second chances, but thousands of other chances uh, to redeem your, your behavior. Uh, but Silas was the guy that went with Paul. Paul took Silas to start doing these missionary journeys. So a faithful friend, they were together in Thessalonica. And then good old Timothy, right? We love Timothy. One of the reasons why we love Timothy is because Timothy knew he was a loser, right? Timid Timothy. And Paul's always having to encourage him to stand up and do the right thing. And, of course, we get some of his pastoral letters are First and Second Timothy. We see a, an intimate view. Paul considered Timothy, in a sense, his adopted son, his spiritual son in the faith. Timothy grew up with a, a covenant mother and covenant grandfather, but his, his uh, um, grandmother, but his father probably wasn't saved. So that kind of probably some tension there, Greek, and then, uh, but his mother was Jewish. So he had, a, he had, but he was trained by godly women and ended up being a profound asset, not just for Paul, but for the church. But that's, so that's the people who are writing. But there's a principle here. I kind of mentioned it earlier when we talked about home group. Uh, it, it, they're doing just like Jesus did to the disciples when he sent them out two by two. There, there is this tendency. I, I see this more in men, but, but we kind of see ourselves as sort of lone ranger Christianities, Christians. And, and we tend to sort of avoid community sometimes. And there's people who don't want to go to church and they don't want to be involved with things. That is not biblical. Paul was the theologian of theologians. Paul was uh, truly the greatest Christian ever lived. And yet he recognized, I need accountability. I need support. I need help. I need somebody to, to, to hold the pot while we pour the water in it, whatever it might be, even practical reasons. So, so there's a community sense here with all these three men, and, and, and they're all writing to him. I say, all right, where's this letter written from? It's probably written from Corinth. Again, that's an advantage of having just finished 2 Corinthians. Probably written from Corinth uh, uh, on Paul's first visit there. He was there for about 18 months. And when was it written? Well, this matters. Thessalonians is actually one of the late oldest letters we have in the New Testament. Maybe James and Galatians are, are, are older, but it was written early in the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul before so much of what we know as the New Testament came out. But the interesting thing about this letter... Uh, because he, we don't know that he wrote it from, from Corinth, at least we highly suspect that he wrote it from Corinth, is that we can actually use some secular information to know when it was written. And this is one of those beautiful uh, truths. Every time someone in the ancient Near East, in Asia, in Italy, puts a shovel to the ground, it confirms the truth of Holy Scripture. And this is the case in the situation here. We know from Acts chapter 18 that, that Gallio was the proconsul in Corinth. All right, he, Paul, because of a ruckus made by the Jews there in Corinth, Paul had to appear before a, 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 a prefect or a, a judge by the name of Gallio. According to a, a dig, uh, that there, a, uh, uh, an inscription found in Delphi, which is not far from Corinth, uh, Gallio was proconsul at Corinth in A.D. 52. Proconsuls take office in the summertime. So Paul probably stood before Gallio early in his reign in the earliest summer, summertime of 52. He'd been there for 18 months. So this letter was probably written around 50 or 51 AD. And why did he read it? This might be one of the most important reasons. He wrote it because he had to depart so quickly from the city after planting the church. He was concerned about their welfare and he was concerned whether or not they were going to become apostate, whether they were going to turn their backs on the truths that they had embraced. And it's remarkable if you look at the accounts and acts and you kind of do some of the math, he stayed there anywhere from three weeks, probably some more, maybe even a few months, but it wasn't a terribly long time. 
We've got an ARP church in Irmo that's particularizing that is becoming a full standalone church this afternoon. They're ordaining uh, Josh Smith as the, as the new pastor of that church. Uh, and I think that church started maybe seven or eight years ago. We've just particularized a church uh, up in Greenville. That church has been going for, I think, three to four years. Our church plan in Savannah has been going three or four years. It takes a lot to plan a church, a whole lot. So here's Paul teaching them for a few weeks, and then he has to leave. Wouldn't you be concerned too? Plus, he's gotten some report that the persecution is continuing. So that's the reason why he writes it. But the other thing is he wants to encourage them. They're actually standing true. They don't have all the advantages that we have. They don't have all the... They're just, they just fell in love with Jesus and they fell in love with the truth and they're standing against paganism on the one side and, and, uh, and uh, Judaism uh, uh, on the other side. And they're still gathering and they're still teaching and they're still raising their babies to be Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this, We ought always to give thanks to our God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Wow. They had a great reputation as a church that was walking with the Lord. Now, y'all, that would be a great goal for us, right? Where do you go to church? Christ Reformed Church in Anderson. Oh, oh, oh. We know that's a godly church. The outside looks like an AT&T switching station, but that's a great godly church. And that cool new T-shirt is something. No, sorry, I took that too far. But don't you want to? I mean, that happens every now and then. You know, you think, oh, you go, you go to, uh, you go to Second Presbyterian Greenville. Whoa. You go to, uh, you know, uh, Christ Community. Whoa. Let's let that be a reputation for us that, that, that is, we have lots of money, not because we have a beautiful building, not because we're particularly handsome people, not because we're great golfers. Because we are godly. Wouldn't that be something to have a reputation of godliness? All right, now we see here the gathered people here of Thessalonica, uh, the, the B part of verse 1. To the church, he's writing Paul, Savannah, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, to give you the origins of this church, you remember Paul, he's on his missionary journey. He's in Asia there, and he wanted to go south, and the Holy Spirit prevented him. He wanted to go east, and the Holy Spirit prevented him. He wanted to go north, and the Holy Spirit prevented him. And he's praying, God, where do you want me to go? I mean, this is like the, the, the dawn of Christianity, and uh, you know, where do we go? And a man of Macedonia, a Greek, a European, appeared in a vision and said, come and help us. Come and help us. Come and help us. So he knew he had to go to Macedonia. What's beautiful in the history of our own country, that's actually the motto of the state of Massachusetts, founded by evangelical Puritans. And it was the view of them, of, to them, and a Native American of one of the Indian tribes saying, come and help us. We've been worshiping the beasts and the spirits of the forest. We need Christianity. Come bring us Christianity. Come and help us. So Paul got on a boat, went to Macedonia, founded the first church in Philippi, the first European church in Philippi. 
Then, uh, after getting beat up there and thrown in jail, Paul, there's kind of a theme here for church planning. Uh, after getting beat up there, he ends up uh, 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 heading, on, heading on down, uh, bruised and battered, walks 100 miles um, along the uh, Ignatian Way towards Thessalonica. And I want to give you this context here by reading to you the account in Acts chapter 17. Listen carefully. Now, when they had traveled through uh, uh, Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul normally started off with preaching to the Jews that there was a synagogue there. And according to Paul's custom, he went there and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they could not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. There's another thing that would be a great reputation for our church if we upset the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. These men who have upset the, uh, the world have, have come here uh, as well. Uh, and Jason was welcoming them and they were, uh, they were acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things. And when they had received a pledge and from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So what happened is they got the head of the church, you know, Jason. He's having to put up money. Paul's re realizing that if this trouble doesn't stop, they're going to take Jason's money away. We need to get out. So they sneak out towards Berea uh, in, in the night here. But it's important to notice, again, this is the kind of trouble that follows, uh, follows Paul all the time. Satan does not want Europe to become Christian. And he's going to take out as many people as he can. He's going to use evil people to do that. And he will use the courts to do that. One of the interesting things is uh, William Ramsey, who was a, a, a British scholar, uh, he was like so many scholars, he questioned the legitimacy of Christianity and he thought he would go out and attack uh, some of the principles that were accepted by Christians, in particular the writings of Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. And as he went out and went out and looked at uh, uh, old uh, manuscripts and papyrus and things like that and, and inscriptions on buildings and that kind of thing, he actually became a confirmed believer. And he realized and he said, Luke is actually one of the greatest, most honest historians the world has ever known. But one of the things Ramsey says is that the very suggestion of treason to, uh, was enough often to prove fatal to the accused. Many a good man was ruined under such a charge. So you want to make a, a, a bunch of insecure Romans more insecure, you go and say, there's a new guy in town, he says there's another king, and it's not Caesar. And that, new, that person is probably going to be dead. He writes to the church here. Uh, notice this is a designation of the church, the word ecclesia. You, if you do church business, you'll say that you know, it's an ecclesiastical business, ecclesia. And this shows that that term church has been used as early as, as, as AD 50. It had been long in practice since only just 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And what is an ecclesia? Well, it's, it's basically a, 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 an assembly of citizens that's called out from other citizens. 
uh, a different society here. Uh, it would be very similar to the Hebrew quahal, uh, uh, which means the, the, uh, uh, the uh, congregation of the Israelites. But the word ekklesia is similar to uh, 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 phrase uh, ek kaleo to mean to call out one. So, or even the elect ones. And if you go to verse 4, Paul references these folks as being uh, some people who have been chosen by God. So this is important, folks. If you want to be known as a Christian, you want our church to be known as a vibrant Christian church, you've, we've got to be called out from the culture. We've got to be called out ones. People who are set aside. That's what holy means. Those who are separated by God himself. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean we go around dressed like 18th century people and, and use horse and buggy, right? That doesn't mean that. It's not those external things. But our allegiance is to the Lord. We love our country, but we're, we recognize we're first citizens of heaven. And everything we do is based on Holy Scripture. And we love and we fear God and we love the Bible. And we're so zealous for the good things that we have learned and the change that's happened in our own life that we just can't wait to tell other people about it. We are called out ones. Again, one of the problems with our culture today is the church just looks so much like the culture, you can hardly tell the difference anymore. And there's even this pressure, I guess it's always been there, to compromise those things so that you can bring the culture into your church. So we take the, the culture's ways, we take their words, we take their music, we take everything in order to be more appealing to the culture. Well, the, the more appealing you become to the culture, eventually there's not going to be much difference. You're no longer going to be a church. You're no longer be a called out one. Now, you can, you can take it to the extreme of weirdness. We understand that and we have seen some of that. But it has to do with your heart. It has to do with your affections. It has to do with your emotions. It has to do with your reasoning ability. Who's your first love? Are you willing to drop everything and follow him? When you've got a bunch of people who are willing to do that, it's a powerful, powerful, powerful force for good. And the Thessalonians were just such people here. Now, one of the other things that's interesting is, again, that term uh, called out is so similar to the term uh, uh, of, uh, of the, the congregation of Israel that's used in the Septuagint uh, that you see kind of a connection here. Basically here, God started with a program with Abraham, with the Israeli people, and he is now in a program in Macedonia. And it's the same type of people. The bloodline, the DNA is different, but the spiritual rebirth is the same here. So the promises that God made to Abraham are now being fulfilled in f former Zeus worshipers. I mean, it's remarkable to see the power of God and the power of the forgiveness of sins and the grace of God. So we see kind of a seamless transition starting here from uh, Israel. Now this gospel has gone from that little corner of the world and beginning to spread throughout Europe, if you don't believe that the church is receiving uh, the, uh, uh, the promises given to Abraham, I would just encourage you to read not, well, Romans, Galatians. There's plenty of evidence there. Let me read to you Galatians chapter 3. And the reason why I'm doing this is what I'm, what I'm stating here is the minority position in the evangelical church in America. There are some churches in America that go so far as to say God has a separate program for Israel and even a separate salvation, even sometimes a separate heaven for the Jews, separate from the Gentiles. 
But listen to what Paul says. There's no separation here. There's a fulfillment here. Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 7. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that as those who are of the faith of the sons, I'm sorry, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Do you have faith? Are you a Christian? Are you really born again? Then you're a son or daughter of Abraham. The scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. I don't know how Paul could be more clear. I don't know how Paul could be more clear. And it matters. Now, for some of y'all, we have a number of, this is the first time they've ever come to a church like ours. And, you know, you know I walk out and I'm wearing this robe and you're thinking, what in the world is that Protestant wearing a robe for, you know? And what are these hymn things that people are singing here? And where's the fog machine? You know, that it, it, I tell people we're in acquired taste. If you stick with us for a month, you'll love it. But it, it takes a little getting used to. And... Uh, you know, so, so why are we like this? Because we recognize the importance of good, true tradition. Good, true tradition. And good, true biblical tradition says we have a connection, not just back to Pentecost, but all the way back to the garden, but especially to the calling of Abraham. God, in that calling, in Genesis chapter 12, had the view that the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, will be sons of Abraham. And we're here today. We're here today. When we go to heaven, we'll be in heaven with Abraham and a bunch of smelly Zeus worshipers, former Zeus worshipers. Former. Let me make sure I got to emphasize that. Great. Universalism here. So Paul here, he is is encouraging them. They are saints. They are called out. And he's reminding that because we have to be reminded of that. It's so easy to compromise. There's this tendency for all of us to want to be woke so that we're popular. But you may end up having to be unpopular. You know, one of the most saddest, uh, one of the saddest stories I know, he knew this sweet, godly woman uh, in Columbia who ended up going to the retirement home in, in Newberry. And uh, they were all sitting around the table. There's about eight of these little blue-haired ladies in their, in their late 80s and 90s. And, uh, and they were all saying, oh, yeah, we think God lets everybody go to heaven. This is what they've been teach, taught in their churches or mainline churches for years. And she says, I'm, I'm sorry, but Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches that only Christians go to heaven. Only true Christians go to heaven. And they just, oh, no, no, you're wrong. You're like, no, no, here, here, here's what it says right here and everything. And then, and then after that, that woman had to eat by herself in the cafeteria three times a day because the other women had, had ostracized her, cut her off, excommunicated her from their lukewarm liberalism. And she ate with the Lord. She was not by herself. Now, if a little old lady who has nothing, that is her entire life. Their exercise class, their meals, their movie nights, their everything. They're taking the bus to the grocery store. Everything has to do with that community. And she's willing to stand up by herself for the Lord and with the Lord. How much more should we be willing to do that kind of thing, to be the called out ones here? As one commentator says, to be a Christian is to be part of the church, both locally and universally. Church provides the communal context for Christian evangelism, discipleship, worship, and ministry. When Christians are saved out of the world, they are saved into Christ's church, 
which serves to establish group boundaries between saved and unsaved humanity. This is one reason we don't push church membership, but we encourage church membership and we have an associate membership for college students. You don't have to give up your home membership, but you can become a member here. You need to do that. If you don't need if you don't do it at this church, you need to do it to some other church. You need to stand up and say, I, I sign up with this church. I associate with this church because God is going to use the church to grow you up in Christianity and use you to help others. There's this huge house church movement here. People get so disgusted with church, they go and start their own little church with their own little family and homes. And I understand that may be how Christianity started in many ways, but that's a very dangerous trend. It's basically you're being, you're being called out of the world into the culture, but these folks are being called out of the church into a separate church Culture. I think it's a dangerous trend. Churches are imperfect. This is an imperfect church starting from the pulpit. But you need to learn to commit and be a part of what that church means. So writes to the Thessalonians here. Uh, Thessalonians, if you take a map, you might even look at the map at the back of your, the uninspired maps of your, well, they're created, it's creation, so maybe it is inspired, but the uninspired maps in the back of your Bible might be uh, helpful here. You see that Thessalonica is on the northernmost point of the Thermaic Gulf here. Uh, the most important thing about Thessalonica, it was on the Ignatian Way, so it was on the Great Highway, which went to modern uh, uh, Istanbul. I always want to call it uh, Byzantium. Uh, it, we probably should call it Byzantium, uh, modern Istanbul, Byzantium, all the way to the Adriatic coast, the ports of the Adriatic coast. So, so that the, literally the, the road went through the middle of the town. So this was a strategic location here. According to the Greek historian Strabo, the city was founded by one of Alexander's gender, uh, generals, uh, Cassandra, in the fourth century. It was named for his wife, Thessalonice, uh, who was also a half-sister, a part-sister of Alexander the Great. So it's got a noble heritage here, right? It was the uh, capital of the province, and they, they, they sided with the right side during some of the Roman civil wars, and they backed Augustus. And Augustus rewarded them by being a free city. So they, were, they, allowed to have some, they had some privileges. They didn't have to have a, a garrison troop there. Uh, they, uh, they had a Jewish synagogue uh, there. Uh, and where he would normally start out. And because of the, the influence of those Jews within uh, the community, that they, had, they were suffering a great deal of persecution. So to this church, and he writes, and, they say, and he tells them, this church, and this is one of these biblical, theological uh, goldmine nuggets here. They are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church's very existence is in God because they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we say our prayers, we say in Christ's name, we can approach the Father because we are in Jesus Christ here. As the author of Hebrews says uh, uh, here, uh, in him we live and move and have our existence. Our very existence is here. Your t the title of Christian actually identifies you as being one that is so absorbed with Jesus Christ that you are basically identified with him. So they are both, notice this though, they're both in the Father and the Son simultaneously. So, so there's a shared deity of God the Son and God the Father here. Jesus is alongside the Father and recognizing the full deity of Jesus Christ, God the Father. So again, this is verse 1 of this entire passage. 
and Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You'll hear people say, oh, I think he was the son of God, but he wasn't God himself. They are not Christians. They're not Christians. Matter of fact, if you don't think he's God, then what in the world are you worshiping him for? Why do you have a cross around your neck? And notice these wonderful titles. Jesus is Lord. That title, Kyrios, was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Septuagint for Yahweh. It is, a, it is God's covenant name. He is in Christ. And Jew, Jews would say Messiah, Christos, in the, or anointed one. The, uh, he has the anointed offices of prophet, priest, and kings. Anointing, of course, with oil on your, your head to signify uh, your special title of position here. And then he is Jesus. Jesus is his human nature. That's his human name. When he was a little boy, he was known as Jesus. And the very name means God saves. Yahweh saves. So here, just in that title, folks, you have the gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus was man. All those titles right there encompass this great truth that Paul is about to expand in this amazing, amazing letter. And what a comfort is to the Thessalonians. The, the rest of the city of Thessalonica might reject you Christians, but you're in God. You're in Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. Then we see here the giving of grace and peace, uh, grace to you and peace here. The, the traditional greeting in the Hellenistic world was uh, cherun, which means to rejoice. But it actually, like we talked about last week, actually is kind of, kind of a, a greeting like they do in England when they say cheers. Uh, that's how they would normally greet. But then Paul changes it to cherish, grace. And he adds that Jew, the Jewish greeting of salam, peace here, uh, shalom here, uh, peace, which means wholeness and well-being. So this grace is to you. That grace is unmerited favor that comes from God. And that's exactly what you need. Because in, unless you have that grace, you will not have peace with God. I, our biggest problem is not crime. Our biggest problem is not disease. Our biggest problem is not inequity. And believe it or not, the biggest problem ain't the government. Okay? Our biggest problem is that as humans, we are born rebels. And we're rebelling against our creator himself. We are at war with God. And we will never not be at war with God until we receive that great grace. That, that sense of well-being. You don't believe me? Listen to Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his own will towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the angel at Christmas time comes to, a, uh, to Mary and says, uh, there appeared an angel in heaven and they are singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. With whom he is pleased. We have a, a lot of folks here today, and like any congregation, there's some saved people and some non-saved people. Uh, and maybe if you're here, God is wooing you to himself. The hound of heaven is on your scent. If it is, you will be saved. may not be today, may not be tomorrow, but it's going to happen. So go ahead and let it be today. And, uh, but some, are, some of you are not Christians. You are here for different reasons. You may be curious or whatever. Folks, you're just not going to have this peace. You're not going to have peace with God 
uh, unless you have the grace of God as well. Gary, the illustration comes to us from history, from Queen Elizabeth. You know, we, Queen, we like Queen Elizabeth because she, she, didn't, she didn't burn Baptist and Presbyterian at the stake. And uh, under her reign, England, Britain, basically gained to start to, uh, to replace uh, Spain as the, uh, the great force of power, uh, both re- with religion and, of course, also politics uh, uh, in her time. But a lot of people didn't like Queen Elizabeth. And there was an assassin that was sent to go kill Queen Elizabeth. And she was a female assassin. She's like Black Widow. And uh, so, she, so to get away with it, she dressed up like a man and pretended to be a courtier. And she snuck into Queen Elizabeth's chambers, dressed as a man, and hid among the gowns. Well, her other people who were with her, uh, the, her maids that were helping her out, would always check her room before she went to bed. And they found the female assassin dressed like a boy with a knife hiding in the gowns, okay? You know, you, are you lost? You know, no. They knew she was there to kill the queen. So they grabbed her, took away her knife, brought her before Queen Elizabeth. I mean, she's obviously guilty, and she confesses her guilt. She throws herself down on her knees and pleads uh, for her life with compassion. And Queen Elizabeth looked at her coldly and said, If I show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? The woman looked up at her. The woman, she was an assassin, but she was a reformed assassin. She knew her doctrine. That's not an encouragement. To... <laughs> the woman looked up and said, Grace that has conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions, is not grace at all. Queen Elizabeth, also a product of Sunday school, uh, caught the idea in a moment and said, You are right. I pardon you in my grace and let her go free. And history says that that woman, that assassin, became her most loyal servant for the rest of her life because she had received grace. How fitting that is for us to know. For those of us who are at peace with God, who've received grace of God, it is our call to be servants. But this peace goes ju- beyond just this, uh, this cosmic conflict that we're part of. It means peace in your life right now. We are such a stressed bunch of people. And I'm especially concerned about you know, young people. Y'all's movies. I would love just to see a movie that, uh, made for your generation of people that has to do with a cottage and a happy little family and a collie dog. <laughs> Picking sunflowers or something like that. But every movie is like this destroyed college that, uh, cottage. There's a dead dog and the sunflowers are toxic. I mean, what's with this dystopian view that young people have? That's not for the Christian. For the Christian, this is our hell. This is our hell. And I think about my great ancestor... Uh, Scotland is formed in family clans, our tribes, and Clan Campbell has always been Presbyterian, even to the point of fighting against other Scots when Bonnie Prince Charlie, who was a Catholic, was trying to uh, usurp the throne. And uh, in all of that, Campbells were also big covenanters, which is the, the spiritual legacy of our associate Reformed Presbyterian Church as well. Uh, it came with the restoration of King Charles II. He came in like they often do and say, listen, hey, the war's over with. We're not going to punish anybody, even people who killed my daddy. Don't worry about it. As soon as he took power, he started killing people who killed his daddy. They threw out 2,000 Puritan ministers, no longer had their retirement, their homes, their livings or anything like that. Uh, and then William and Mary eventually took over. But in that process, 
Archibald Campbell, the first Marquis and eighth Duke of Earl of Argyle, was implicated in, that he had actually made a plot against King Charles II. So he was jailed and he was uh, sentenced to be executed. And it was said that the, right before he was being executed, he was writing letters, including a letter to the king to ask that they take care of his wife and children. And he says, here I am setting my affairs in order, but God is sealing my character, my, sorry, my, uh, my charter to a better inheritance and saying to me, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. As they take him to the, the infamous toll booth in Edinburgh, uh, uh, his wife is outside and she, scream, she screams, the Lord will pay back them for this that they've done to you in vengeance. With great self-control, he looks to her and he says, control yourself, dear. Truly, I pity them. They know not what they are doing. They may shut me up where they please, but they cannot shut God out from me. For my part... I am as content to be here as I am in the castle, as content in the castle as in the Tower of London, a jail, and as content there as when I am at liberty. And I hope to be as content on the scaffold as of any men. Now, the remarkable thing, this church is full of martyrs, but his physician was with him the whole time. And as he is up on what they called the maiden, which was a form of Scottish guillotine, it was probably looked like a guillotine, but it was cheaper uh, and plaid. Uh, and uh, as he's, they're about to glop off his head, the, the, uh, the doctor goes over and listens to his pulse. And he said his pulse was as at ease as if he was, he was in a chair in the study of his own house. That's the power of being in God and being in Christ. This idea of grace and peace isn't just the introduction to a letter. It's the reality of a Christian who is walking with Jesus Christ. Paul opened up with this idea of uh, peace. It's a blessing of peace. And he closes with this idea of peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Jesus, in his account of the Olivet Discord in Matthew 24, said this, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what time the thief would come, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason... You also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give him the food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. That's our challenge this morning. And that's going to be our challenge until this entire school year, probably till April or May, as we go through first and second Thessalonians, that we as the children of God should live in the light of his return. Father, we thank you for the encouragement. That we know that you're coming back. It is our great prayer that we would be ready. And Lord, when we start thinking about your return, the check that we have in our heart is because we have so many people we know and love that are not saved. 
that at the same time, when you fill the clouds and you come back and the trumpet blast uh, is heard and you begin the great final judgment of men, at that same time, when we are rejoicing and reaching up towards the sky, towards our Lord, we know that those that we love will be in terror, wishing, as they say in Revelations, that the rocks would fall on them to avoid the great judgment gaze of our God. So we pray that this message of salvation would come to them and that you would choose them and they would be saved as well. And Lord, we pray that you'd use us to do that. For not only are we to have holy living and right contact, we are also to go take this gospel to the nations that the end will come. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.